we believe there is hope in this world. Mosaic has always been passionate about caring for orphans, and in the last three years, we've made Orphan Care a specific missional focus through Orphan Sunday. The families you're seeing today are just a small sampling of those involved in Orphan Care. Over the last three years, at least 120 families in our church have stepped into caring for children through child sponsorship, mentoring, safe families, foster care, and adoption. As a result, over 300 children have been cared for. Three years ago, at least 79 of the children in our midst did not have a family to call home. Now 34 of our families are forever families for these children from six different countries. Over the last three years, families at Mosaic have spent approximately $2 million on caring for children. Several families have stepped into being foster families, and many more have become safe families. As a result, 80 children have been cared for. For the last two years, a team of 15 to 20 volunteers from Mosaic have invested time providing childcare for a monthly foster parents meeting. They've spent over 800 volunteer hours playing with and praying with a group of up to 60 foster children. Many families and individuals sponsor children each month. For the last three years, we've spent $150,000 to care for 100 orphans in Ethiopia. We've learned a lot about how complicated caring for orphans can be, but we've also learned that there is great redemption to be experienced. We've learned that there are many ways that we can each be involved in making a difference for children in need. And we've learned that everyone can get involved. Together we are making a difference in the lives of children who were in need of the love and care only a family can provide. If 120 families can impact over 300 children, imagine the impact we can have as a church if more of us get involved. If 100 more families step into adoption, we could provide forever families for at least 230 more children locally and globally. If 100 more families and individuals step into foster care and safe families, we could provide emergency care for 400 more children in our city. If 100 more people step into sponsoring a child, we could provide care for at least 150 more children around the world. Over the next three years, if all of us would step into the world of caring for orphaned and abandoned children in some way, we have the potential to impact the lives of more than 1,500 children. Everyone can participate in orphan care. It doesn't matter if you're not able to provide a home for children. If you work, if you travel frequently, if you're married or single, if you don't have money to give, there are so many ways that anyone can help. If we all take the time to figure out what our role can be, imagine the impact we can have as a church. Every child matters. Every one of us can make a difference. Together, we can be the hope in this world.
Uh, this morning as we come together. Uh, this is the weekend in the annual calendar of uh, the American church where we kind of focus on the issue of orphans and orphan care around the world. It's called Orphan Sunday and it really gives us an opportunity to step in and really kind of dig deeper into the reality of our call and our privilege and our invitation into the lives of orphans and widows around the world. And three years ago, a little over three years ago, my wife and I began our adoption journey and so Orphan Sunday three years ago we began this focus here at Mosaic Church to say let us step into orphan care in a big way and we dreamed then of having the kind of impact that would be a felt impact a real deal the kind of thing that we could touch and see and go wow there it is there there's what all of our energy and effort into this is producing in terms of fruit and real impact and when we were putting this video together uh, over the last few weeks and, and just starting to do the research here inside of the community of Mosaic on the impact that we have had over the last three years, I got to tell you, some things jumped out at me that were just super, super exciting. I mean, just think about this number for a second. Three years ago, there were 79 children from six different countries around the world that did not know that there was a family pursuing them, did not know that they were going to be rescued, did not know anyone was coming. They were living with a future that had a completely different picture. And over the last three years, 79 of those children have forever families right here inside the walls of this community. And, and those children now have a completely different story ahead. Uh, three years ago, uh, between then and now, uh, this church's individuals, people in this church that have invested into caring for orphans, whether it be through foster care, adoption, sponsorship, whatever, have spent over $2 million just as individuals, uh, as a community, in orphan care. That, that's a big number. You start going, wow, really? I mean, that much? I went to Gabe and I was like, can we relook at that? That's not possible. And oh, it's, it's actually probably small. We, we're estimating small on that conservatively. When you start looking at that and you start looking at the impact that say families and foster care and sponsorship and babysitting have had on the issue of orphans and you start realizing that when we as individuals come together as a body, as a single unit and make a decision to walk into an issue that God has called us into, that the impact can begin to become extraordinary. And it only stirs up in me the question, if this is what we've done in three years, man, where do we go from here? We don't stop now, we don't settle now, we double time it, we run faster harder, quicker, so we can see that increase. And so as I looked at that, I thought to myself, man, that is something else. But then I also realized, just as the video kind of pointed to, that as we have stepped into the issue of orphan care, we have also discovered as a church that the issue of orphan care is complicated. It is not simple. It is not romantic. It is not wonderful. You don't step into messes that the world has created in the lives of children without expectations of some very significant issues that are going to come with that. And so we have, un we have discovered the complications that come with orphan care. I thought to myself, you know, if I could make a video that could preempt this video or follow it, I would like to make another video that measures some things slightly differently. Doesn't measure it by dollars and volunteer hours and amount of children and families. I want a video 
that will measure how many tears have hit the ground in three years in our homes as a result of stepping into the world of orphan care. I want to measure that one. I mean, I could add 10,000 to that one. I want to see how many tears hit the ground exclusively as a result of stepping into the lives of orphans or orphan care. I want to measure temper tantrums. That's what I want. I want to know how many temper tantrums have we endured in our homes as a result of stepping into the adoption world. Give me that list. I want that on a video because that will be mind-blowing. Two million won't even touch it, man. I, I want to I measure hours not slept. That's what I want. I want to know how many hours would we all have slept if we had just decided to ignore the issue of orphans. If we decided, forget it, that just sounds too dangerous, too hard, too crazy. Let's not do that. How many additional hours would we have slept that we did not sleep? I want that on a video. I want that. I want emotional breakdowns in adults. I want that one on there, okay? I mean, I can add about 150 to those. I want the moments where things were so hopeless that you felt like you wanted to pack your bags, fly to some island in the Caribbean, and never, ever be found again like you're a fugitive. That, I want that on the video. Because the reality is, as we have stepped into the uh, world of orphan care, we have not found it to be romantic, we have not found it to be wondrous, we have not found it to be full of unbelievable rewards, we have found it day to day to be a mess, because that's what it is, because the world and sin in the world have created a mess in the lives of our children, and we are bringing those into the sanctity and the sacred reality of our homes and bringing it into our families, and we have learned that that is not hard, and you, uh, that is not easy, and you know, I'm not one to kind of paint rosy pictures and kind of try to tell you how wonderful things are. I kind of tend to go d right down to the raw. So over the last few years, as we've stepped into uh, adoption ourselves, you know, you've heard me preach messages with titles like The Darkness Rises. You don't put titles like that on messages unless it's really bad. And, and, and those are the kinds of things that have come from this stage as I have tried to describe to you the raw realities of what it means when you choose to step into mission in the lives of the world of orphans. It's not easy. My mom actually, who live streams on a regular basis, uh, she used to tell me at a certain point when it was really bad, and I would just preach message after message after message of the difficulties. She'd say, you gotta quit, man, because nobody's ever gonna adopt if you keep going. It's so scary at this point, nobody's gonna touch it. And then I would tell her, I, I hear you, I do. But the, the more we walk through this over the last three years, the more people tend to engage. We have the young people engaged, we have the retired generation engaging. We have single adults engaging and married adults engaging and midlife adults engaging. We have large families engaging. We have small families engaging. We have no children families engaging. Across the board, it seems like in this place, uh, I could go into any category and there are people engaging deeply into the lives of orphans in our church. And so, uh, you know, I start thinking about all those people and a few of them that, uh, that I tend to circle up with that tend to be in my circle of friendship and I, I think about the lives they've lived and all the blogs I've read. You know, you read the blogs and the books and they're pretty accurate to you. Know, the blogs are a little flowery but they kind of go, uh, you know, month 18, a little better than month 17, month 19, much worse than month 18. You know, the blogs sort of play it out as it goes. But you know, as we've watched adoption realities in the families 
streets, we have, we have seen the truth of these blogs. That, that it, it is hard. I mean, I think about uh, my, my friends, the Petinias, uh, who had five children, one little, I mean, hardly walking, and they adopt two more out of Ethiopia. And the, the absolute collision and train wreck that has uh, emerged in their home that, that came next to my train wreck and went, oh, look, they're the same. It's so beautiful. We train wrecked together. I think about families like the Souths who step into adoption and they have in their home uh, some of the challenges that come with some medical realities and then they decide to adopt a young lady into their home with medical realities and you go, I mean, isn't it supposed to work this way? When you already have the problem, don't add to it. And they go, no, 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 we just think we're really well suited for it. You're like, who thinks like that? And then you have uh, families like the Stanleys who, who don't have any medical issues and they go and adopt a young lady with medical needs and you're supposed to tell them, no, 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 you see, if you don't have them, you're not prepared for it, you shouldn't do it. And you go, wait, wait, wait wasn't that the last rule? I don't know anymore. We can't keep track of the rules because we're breaking all of the rules. We, we have watched families step in that should be checking out, they're checking in, they're crazy. We have grandparents adopting in this place. I mean, I think about the Coxes. I mean, their last kid heads off to college. You know, that's when you start traveling. That's when you start hitting the world. You say, whoa, whoa, man, all the hard work of parenting. And then, they, and then they adopt into their home two beautiful children, and they kind of start all over again. You're like, what are you guys thinking? It's golf and shells. Pick up shells on the beach, play golf. That's what you're supposed to do. And they go, ah, uh, uh, no, no, no. No, not under our paradigm. I think of the butlers and another set of grandparents. I mean, their kids are on, on the mission field or with our church, and, and they have grandchildren now. And, and then they get these two little girls through safe families, and, and then it suddenly turns into we're their godparents, and then we're kinda, we, they kind of come with us all the time, and they kind of live with us a lot. And now every time I see the butlers, the two girls are with them, and I'm like, what are you, what are you guys doing, man? You guys crazy? And they go, yeah. And I go, great. And, and, and you see this play out. You see the young married couples in our church here, and, and, and they're, you know, they're in that mode of before you have kids, you're free, so do all the stuff you want to do, and they're all becoming safe families and foster care families and taking on children and, and watching over them and paying the price we pay when we have kids. They're paying it now because they care about orphans and they're bought in. I, I think about Amanda and Felicia, who you saw in the video. Here are two young ladies in our church. Uh, they do what young adults do. They find an, an apartment together or a house together. They, they room because it's uh, money saver and you think that that's you know that's how the young adults live and what do they do they go well if everybody else is involved in orphan care we want in so they become a safe family and they take babies in they have a little baby right now you'll hear her cry in the back over there because Amanda's holding her she's like six days old they have her for three months Amanda's grumpy because she hasn't slept I love that story because Amanda and Felicia have stepped into this. See, it doesn't really matter what category we're in. We have all these different families. Those are just a scattering of the families I'm talking about. There's all these families that have decided to step in, 36 of them, 79 children, just in the adoption category, let alone safe families and foster care. And you look at this and you go, hold on a second, hold. 
We've all discovered that the rewards for stepping into the world of orphans are not wonderful. They're not awesome. They're not incredible, at least not short term. Certainly there is the larger picture of reward. You get to see a video like we just watched and you go, hold on a second, I'm part of a story of 79 children that have forever homes now. I'm part of a story of $2 million shifted over three years to care for orphans. I'm part of safe families and kids that have experienced love. That's awesome. That's the big picture. It's cool. It is. And you get to sit back when you're in opposition of caring day to day and go, wow, I'm glad I'm part of that. But then you go home and your normal day hits and that doesn't feel like the video. It feels very different. It's just lots of war and fighting and dysfunction and craziness and death and horror. And you're like, what's going on in my nice little house? And, and so you start beginning to ask a question, don't you? If you guys have all discovered that stepping into the world of orphans and giving life and freedom back to children who have as much of a, of a need and a right to have love as the biological children that have entered into our world, and we're going to step into that, and it's so hard, and the rewards are big picture, but not every day, and the guarantee of some end result that your children are going to grow up, and they're going to be beautiful Jesus followers who are grateful and humble and kind and honor you with all their hearts. If there's no guarantees for that, because there's not, read the books, okay? I mean, it's a hit and miss. Sometimes, sometimes not. So we don't even have that. Like, if I work hard enough now, it'll all turn out okay before I die. Not necessarily. Then why on earth are we doing it? What's in the water here? Why are family after family engaging in, in, in caring for orphans and foster care and adopting and, and babysitting and sponsoring children? Why? Why are you people doing this? Are you people crazy? And that's when we begin to say, okay, well, let's take a look at why. Let's take a look at why we do it because it's important. Why is it important that we know why we're doing it? Because for those of us that are in it, for the 120 families here that are in the thick of it right now, we need to be reminded every single day why we're doing this. Otherwise, it gets really old, really fast, really hard. So we need to continue to tell each other, remember why we're doing this. Remember why this is happening. Remember why we are compelled into this story. And for the rest of us that are on the fringes wanting to engage but not sure because we've heard the horror stories, it's important that we hear over and over again, this is why we do it. This is why we're compelled to engage in the kinds of things that are hard on planet Earth. You see, here at Mosaic Church, we have been on a journey from, from the beginning of Scripture all the way through. I think eight years now. And we entered into the, out of the Old Testament into the Gospels and we, we bumped into Jesus and we watched him as he was born supernaturally onto planet Earth and lived this un unbelievable life and taught these unbelievable things and, and, and claimed to be from another place, a place where, 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 where we have not been. And, and we're like, could he be? And then we watched him emerge as the promised Messiah. We watched him live his life and then we entered into his death and his resurrection and, and we discovered the, the reality of this thing called the gospel. You've, you've heard that before, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And as we've journeyed through the scriptures and we've started unpacking and discovering and digging into and, and, and crawling through the gospel, trying to discover it in all of its fullness, some things have begun to stir in us over the last few years as a community. See, because the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, as you discover its fullness, begins to show you two incredible things. 
It shows you an incredible freedom. You start discovering a freedom that is so mind-blowing, so transcendent of everything on this planet that you begin to realize regardless of circumstance, relationship, resource, whatever, I am free. And we've begun to discover, taste of, and experience what that could be like, what that is like. But we've also discovered in the fullness of the gospel that the gospel has a compelling obligation it calls us into. With this incredible freedom comes this beautiful obligation, not an obligation born out of anything legalistic or, or anything necessary, but an obligation born out of the freedom and love that we've experienced, an obligation that is a compelling invitation into something utterly bigger than we could have ever asked for or imagined. That's what we've begin to, begun to discover. What is this gospel, this fullness of gospel we've began to stare into as a church? When we were created, you and I, as the human race, God created us with an intent so extraordinary that we still can't fully grasp it. He created us into a perfect environment that he had made ahead of time to declare the power and wonder and glory of his character and his power and his might. And he creates us into this and he basically makes us for two things and only two things. He makes us so that we can experience fully what right relationship and what intimate relationship would be like if a creator and sustainer made you and then loved you and protected you and watched over you and spoke into you and walked with you and talked with you. And he said, man, I'm going I'm to create you so that you can experience freedom. That's it. I'm just going to make you to be free. How awesome is that? I'm going to make you so you can be free. That's unbelievable. And God makes us for that freedom. But then he takes it a step further and he goes, now, if you think that's awesome, if you think that's enough, it's better than that. I'm not only going to make you to be free and to experience freedom, but I'm then going to use that experience and I'm going to make you to become a reflection of, an image bearer of the realities of who I am. In your freedom, in your intimate love, in your absolute and wondrous life and freedom and, and light, you are going to turn around and to all of creation, including your fellow man, you are going to display and demonstrate and make known the incredible freedoms I'm birthing in you. You're going to wake up every morning and this is your life. I'm totally free and I'm totally free to make God known. Everything you say, everything you do, everything you touch is going to be life-giving, light-giving, beautiful. And the enemy of God came along into that story and he convinced us of a single idea. If you want a better life than what God has already created you for, here's how it works. Don't live under his divine authority and protection. Become like him. Know what he knows and then you can set your own destiny, become your own God and you can become divine. If you eat of this fruit, you will know what he knows and you won't need him anymore. And we bought into that idea. We bought into the idea that our divinity, becoming our own gods, was a better plan than living under the divine authority and protection of our creator and sustainer, living in his freedom, displaying his character. We thought, ah, no, if we can live under our own freedom and display our own character, that would be better. So we ate of the fruit, and instead of discovering divinity like the enemy said we would, we discovered exactly what God said we would. We discovered death. This word we were completely unfamiliar with, and it wasn't a pretty word. 
sin and death came into our lives and into the lives of this world and it wreaked havoc on us. We suddenly found ourselves broken, separated, orphaned, lost. I mean, these are the words we came up with, right? Lonely, scared, full of shame, full of fear, driven by need, chasing after the wind so we could crawl together some version of an idol that would meet our needs and some version of a path that would make us divine. A constant wrestle in our soul between wanting, needing, filling, and wanting to be king and God and Lord. And so constantly looking at everything around us and asking ourselves, how can I extract what I need from you? How can I extract what I need from planet Earth? And it became a crazy version of self-focus. And we were miserable. And we kicked into what every human being does when they are lost and lonely and orphaned and hurt and full of pain and full of shame and full of abandonment. They, they do the same thing every time. We switch into survival mode. And survival mode is very different than the way we tend to live when we don't have to survive. Everything subtly becomes about extracting whatever you can from what's around you. We were orphans. That's what we were. Lost to our home, abandoned from everything good. Not because our father abandoned us, but because we abandoned him. And instead of leaving us in that state, here's what the gospel of Jesus Christ says. That God, from the second we were created, had initiated a plan that was a plan of extraordinary rescue. That he was going to come into our story, that he was going to hold us together through the nation of Israel and show us the extraordinary nature of what it means to be protected and loved by God. And then he was going to come into our story, literally crawling into a body of flesh and blood to live with us, walk with us, cry with us, a struggle with us, pain with us, hurt with us. He was going to take on death for us. And then, as though that wasn't enough, he was going to carry a cross for us and die on it for us and allow us to ravage him completely. But he also, he also came to resurrect from the dead so that he could show us that there was a greater hope at the end of the redemptive process, that to redeem death and sin takes struggle and suffering and becoming nothing and crosses and crucifixions, it does. But at the end of that story, there will always be the resurrection of all of that to bring about the greater beauty in the story. And we discovered that. And Jesus said, now that I have redeemed you, now that I've rescued you, I am restoring you to your original created purpose to go out into the world and to image me and to display me and to declare me. Paul writes in a, a letter to the church in Corinth, the second letter that he wrote uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he describes the implications of the gospel so beautifully in this passage. You've heard this before, but we could hear this a thousand times. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. There's the beginning of the gospel story. You were lost, you were orphaned, I was lost, I was orphaned, and Jesus came and got us. 
He didn't wait for us to come to him. He came and got us. We didn't even know he was pursuing us. We didn't even know he was coming. We didn't even know he cared. And here he came and he got us. And one day we woke up and found ourselves in Christ and we went, what on earth? This is incredible. And just like any, any child who has lived in an orphan world, in the midst of the brand new life, you still struggle with the old one, don't you? You still long for some things that you thought were better on the other side. And so Jesus in his love allows for that dynamic to play out and just goes, I still love you. I don't care. I still love you because I came for you. But then look, it doesn't stop there. The gospel is only halfway done at this point. Look at this. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and, big and, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You see the purpose restored there? I've rescued your soul, made you new, but I've also restored your purpose and sent you out. That's the redemptive reality under which we live. Look what he says. He unpacks it further. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins or trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. That's the gospel. That's the story. And you see, at Mosaic Church, as we have begun to discover the fullness of that gospel, and we've begun to watch Jesus live his life out in an extraordinary way, we have seen what God is, is inviting us and compelling us into. Jesus demonstrated this, practically speaking, in his everyday life as well. Remember before Jesus comes to planet Earth, God is working through the Jewish people, and because the Jewish people... At that point, the human race had not experienced the redemptive reality of Jesus and received the Holy Spirit as a seal and as an empowerment of God within them. Here's what God established for them. The world is dark and dangerous and it's full of death and bondage and, 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 it's, and, and, and darkness. And if you step into that world and you interact with that world, it is going to influence you. It is going to make you dark. It is going to suck you in because your sin nature uh, weakens the law so that it cannot keep you safe, right? So what does he do with the Jewish people? He separates them out and he says, don't step on unholy ground, don't talk to people that aren't uh, a part of God's world, don't touch anyone, don't, don't look at anything. Basically like, just stay safe, stay out of the way and that's how I'll protect you. And then Jesus comes into that paradigm where we are constantly walking like this, don't touch that, don't go there, dark, evil, ah, ah. That's how we live and it's a great burden the law affects on us. And Jesus comes in and this is what he does. He walks around going like this. Touch the leper, talk to the prostitute, go hang out with the sinner, sit on the unholy ground, travel across the Sea of Galilee to Decapolis where the demons are, go sit on the bad rock, and you're like, what are you doing, man? You're so unclean, we don't even know if we can be around you anymore. And then Jesus showed us something, didn't he? See, what you're missing in the equation, he began to show us is that under the previous paradigm, you were weakened by your sinful nature, so the law could not maintain the holiness that is required. So if you so much as stepped into the world, it would taint you, it would darken you, it would make you sick and dead, so I protected you from that. But I've come now 
and I've set you free from the slavery in which you lived under sin. I have set you free from that, and I've empowered you with the Holy Spirit, so now you do what I do. You don't hide from the world anymore. You don't hide from the dark places. You don't hide from death. You don't hide from bondage. You walk into it. The game has changed, folks. And we discovered that in the gospel, that we are now sent into that dark world. We don't live a legalistic life to keep ourselves safe from every bad thing. We go, no, you don't know who I am. I have the Holy Spirit. I'm empowered by Jesus. And even if your junk touches me and makes me unclean, I'll watch him clean it up as it enters my body. Because Jesus has already set me free. I'm already free, man. Nothing can touch me. Oh, look, you sinned again. I know, I'm bummed I did that, I am. And I'm gonna repent of that, but not even that can touch me. Because my righteousness isn't because of anything I'm doing. It's because Jesus came and got me. I belong to God because God rescued me. And so we walk into this life now and Jesus goes, no listen, here's the cool part. I've empowered you as individuals that are Christ followers and as the cumulative community of individuals that are Christ followers, we call it the church, I have empowered you to go into the dead places, the dark places, the bound places, and go bring life and freedom and light to those places. You take on the crosses now. You bear the burdens now because you can, because you're free. So is there a hard place out there? Go, go touch it, see what happens. I'm in you now. Don't be afraid anymore. I'm with you. And then as we continue to study scripture, we come to this interesting, compelling point that drives us back to where we are today. It's almost as though God, in the scriptures, since he knew that the redemptive life was a big life and there was a lot of complicated moving parts to it. I mean, you gotta, you gotta be redemptive in your workplace and in your family and home and your marriage if you're married and, and your parenting if you're parenting. You, you, you're redemptive in your social networks. You're redemptive in your neighborhood, your local community, your global community. I mean, there's a, a lot, right? And you're like, how do I do it? Where do I begin? How do I start? And any good parent knows that if you're going to help your children step into something big, you gotta start simple, right? So this is happening in our home right now. Uh, in our home, we are struggling through the realities of showing respect to mom and dad, right? I mean, no, none of you have ever struggled with that. I, I know that, but our home's different than yours, and so we actually struggle with stuff. And, and so um, in our home, our, our kids don't, don't respect us very much, and it plays out in multiple ways, especially in the way that they just they like to talk back. They, they think they're their own gods. They're like little divine beings. Uh, who knew, right? I mean, where does that come from? Oh, Garden of Eden. Anyway, so uh, they, they, are, they are fighting for their independence, and, and we're living with eight kids, four adopted, four biological, and our, our home is crazy, and so our kids have this habit now where if we say something, eh, they just uh, fight back. And so we're like, okay, this is crazy. All right, so just recently, when I got back from Ethiopia last week, I, I came to my kids and I said, look, this, this uh, reality in our home where you are disrespecting your mother in particular, and, and me a little bit, um, I'm bigger, stronger, that's why. Um, the, this, this has gotta come to an end. This has gotta stop, it's done. So, so I made it very simple for them. And we did this yesterday. I said, look, you want to live a life where you are honoring and respecting your parents. And remember, this is very important because if you don't honor and respect your parents, you will establish a habit where you will not honor and respect your spouse. And you will not honor and respect your kids. And you will not honor and respect your, your authorities in life. And you will, here's the big one, you will not honor and respect God. God took this so seriously that he made it one of the Ten Commandments. Honor your mother and father. That's a big deal. Don't kill people. Honor your mother and father. I mean, really? 
really? We should have a prison sentence for kids that don't honor their parents, right? If, if we look at it that way, right? As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, God took this so seriously that if a kid didn't honor their mom and dad, they had, they, you, could, you could stone them. And you go, what? What? See, God realized that it starts here. So I told my kids, look here. You're going to learn to honor mom and dad because that's going to save your life in the future. So here's how it works. Here's how you honor mom and dad. Two rules. So simple. So simple. When we say something that asks you to do something, go somewhere, stop doing something, turn to the left, turn to the right, go, whatever it is, here's what comes out of your mouth. Ready? Here it is. Two three-letter words. Very simple. Yes is the first word. And then the second word depends on the sex of the person speaking to you, okay? If it's a female, say, yes, mom. If it's a male, say, yes, dad. That's it. There are the words, yes, mom, yes, dad. That's it. That's it. You don't add a letter. You don't add a sentence. You don't add a period. You don't add a question mark. You don't add a tone. You just go, yes, mom, done, end of story. I said, if you guys only use those two words for the next six months, uh, you will never be in trouble. I said, here's the deal. Second, once you've uttered the words, yes, dad, or yes, mom, right when those words are said, then here's the second thing you do to honor and respect your mom and dad, okay? Whatever you just said yes to, actually do it. Actually just go do it. Don't say, yes, mom, and then continue what you're doing. Stop what you're doing and go, yes, mom, and then go do what you were just asked. That's it. I mean, how simple is this? This is not complicated. We've boiled it down to six letters and a quick action. And yet my children seem to have a very hard time not adding to that equation. And I think to a certain extent, that's exactly what God did in the scriptures for us. He said, look, the life I'm calling you into to be missional, this life to be reconcilers of God, to carry the message of reconciliation, it's a complicated reality. It's complicated in your workplace and your social networks and all that. So let's just start simple. Let's just start somewhere small and we'll build on it. But for now, let's just start there. Because you guys know respecting mom and dad is more than just yes, mom, and doing what you're told. It's so much more. But that's a good starting place, isn't it? You do that, we're good, we're good. So God goes, Let, let's start here. And you see it throughout Scripture, the heart of God poured out into the realities of those that are broken. But in James chapter 1, verse 27, he kind of nails it down for us and boils it down to two simple realities. He goes, you, you, you want to do something that I will look at and go, now that is awesome. Forget all the religious activity that you pull off and all the other junk you spend your time doing and, and just jump into this single two-rule plan and I think you'll just always be in the right place in some way. Listen to this. James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God. I mean, how, how simple does that get? You want to do, do, do religion that is pure and undefiled before God. He says this, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, that is to get involved in the lives of widows and orphans, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So he says two things. He says, look, you wanna do this? Here's how you do it. Number one, find the broken, the destitute, the lost, find the orphans and the widows, those who because of planet Earth have lost what they should have had, right? They lost what they should have had. You become that for them. You go become that for them. You go do that. And while you're doing that, here's the other thing. Keep your eyes fixed on me. 
Don't be looking around at the world. Don't be buying into the world's philosophies. Don't be stepping into the world's junk. You keep your eyes fixed on me and you go take people that are broken and you rescue them. That's it. It's so simple. Two things. Eyes fixed on Jesus. Go rescue. Eyes fixed on Jesus. Go rescue. Well, what's it going to cost me? A lot. But it doesn't matter. Because if your eyes are fixed on me, you won't care. You won't care. You take your eyes off me, suddenly you're going to go, oh my goodness, my comfort zones are smashed to bits and everything's all wrong. Where is God? He's going to go, eyes, eyes right back here. Remember who you are, remember what I've done, right? That's our privilege. So we start there. It's not the ending point, but it's the starting point. Go find people that are broken, lost, devastated, and orphaned, and rescue them. Why? Why do you think God starts there? Because I'll tell you, if we are going to be reflectors, displayers of the reality of God's redemptive process in our lives, what more powerful way to do that than to go and find people that were just like us and to bring them life and freedom and light? And how are they going to respond? Sometimes really well, sometimes really badly. Welcome to your life. How often have you gone, where are you? What have you done? Can't you see? My life is horrid. Can't you hear me? And God goes, hold, hold. The entire inheritance of all of eternity is yours. I'm confused. You're complaining about that? I'm really confused. I do this with my kids all the time. Whoa, I, I gave you life. And you're complaining about the color of your lollipop? I'm gonna kill you. And that's our life, isn't it? Our life with God is that way. He's patient with us even when we are ungrateful, entitled little maniacs. And so we step into the lives of other people who don't yet know what they have. And it might take years, decades to do it. My biological and adopted children have no idea what I've given them. And they probably won't until they're 50. And I'll be dead. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is this. But that's not why I do what I do. I don't step into these things because it's rewarding. Because on the end of the story, there's some better thing for me. Do not pursue missional living or caring for the world of orphans because you think there'll be some great reward for you at the end. Yes, maybe in eternity, but not now. We step into that because we step in as an act of worship. We step in because God asked us to. We step in because that's our privilege. We step in to serve, not to see outcomes or results. We step in because he lets us. And because when we do, we allow the Spirit of God to display Christ through us. And that's what we get to do. I grew up in a military family and so uh, the military world has always been a world I've, I've enjoyed watching because it has particular structures and realities. And in the military world, if you move high enough and you do enough horrid stuff and they train you enough, you come into some elite parts of the military world. And then when you get to be part of the elite forces, if you continue to train and continue to do stuff, you become part of the elite, elite forces. Forces like the Navy SEALs, right? And we always make movies of these guys because they go to the impossible places. They, when, when something has to happen that that nobody can pull off. They go to the Navy SEALs, or they go, go to the Delta guys, or these guys, they go, okay, uh, pull together the small team, let's send them into some crazy place. It's suicidal, you're, you're probably gonna die, and if you do, we can't tell anyone. But hey, it's all good. So you whisper to your spouse, I may never see you again, and if I don't, they won't tell you, but. 
this is what I've trained for. This is what I live for. This is what they've made me for. This is what they spent millions of dollars preparing me for. And then these guys go into crazy places. So I, I said to God, early on in my spiritual journey, I said to God, listen, um, here's the deal. <clears throat> I, I know you're gonna do whatever you want with me on planet Earth anyways, and so you want me to be a foot soldier among the big crowd of 10,000 foot soldiers heading into the gates of hell. I, I'm, I'm okay with that, I'm just not totally cool with that, okay? I, I would like to be part of the elite forces, whatever that is spiritually on this planet. I'd like to be a part of that small group of crazy people that when God looks at planet Earth and he goes, that is a dirty, crazy, insane place to send anybody into. It's a pioneering work that nobody should ever do. It's gonna be suicidal. Somebody call Renault. Somebody call him. He'll do it, he's stupid enough. He'll go. That's who I wanted to be. That's who I wanted to be. And that's who I continue to wanna to be. And so whenever I see movies that have the elite forces involved, I'm always excited because it's an entire spiritual movie for me. I'm just like, oh, that's our life. Look at that, it's so beautiful. And so recently, a movie came out called Act of Valor, which is a movie actually sort of documentary style about the Navy SEALs and some real missions that they did um, that are now declassified, and they used actual Navy SEALs, active duty Navy SEALs, as some of the actors in the movie, so I thought it wouldn't be that great, but these guys were phenomenal. And so the, the part of the movie that was so cool is these guys that are actually the actors, this is what they do for a living, so when they're walking with their guns, that's how you actually walk with guns. It's not the silly movies like, bam, bam, bam. Nobody does that. <laughs> Nobody does that. So, so this is the real deal, right? So there's a scene that takes place in the movie that I really, 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 really wanted to show you today, but because we are a safe place for smaller children here, I didn't want to show the scene because it's really intense. Nothing horrid in it, but it's an intense scene, so you're gonna have to bear with me as I tell you the story because that way you don't hear the sounds of the insane amount of bullets that uh, exchange spaces on the scene, okay? So um, these Navy SEALs, right? Uh, there's a small team sent into some jungle, I think in Colombia, because as a CIA agent, a woman, who was working on this terrorist uh, a reality that guys were trying to blow up a bunch of stuff in America, she had found a cell phone and some stuff, and so she was working on getting information uh, down the pike to the people that were going to do something about it, and she was taken captive by the terrorists and taken to this jungle and put in this little house and tortured there to try to extract information from her. So because you're not allowed in this jungle and this country doesn't want U.S. soldiers in it, we have to go in undercover, right? So who do they call? They call the Navy SEAL, SEAL Team 6, and they go, get, get some of your best guys and send them in. So they go in, they parachute out of a plane at night into the water, they go into the jungle, they surround this little base, there's a bunch of hostels in the base, they get everything prepped and then they take out several of the hostels and the three guys go in to extract the hostage, right? They're rescuing somebody. The hostage is in pain, She's, she's broken, she's been tortured, and so they take her, put, them, put her over the shoulder, and as they're coming out of this situation, they find out, because of a camera that's in the sky, that, they are, uh, they, that there are other hostels as well. So they jump into this little green truck, okay, uh, that, that they grab. It's a crazy, dumb little green truck. You could probably see it, right? So there are six Navy SEALs in this green truck. One injured badly, he got shot. So they think he's dead, but they're not sure yet. He ends up, he's not dead, but he's very badly wounded. And they've got the hostage with them that's bleeding and tortured and in pain, right? 
So she's out cold, their friend is out cold, two guys are on the back of the truck ready to shoot backwards and the other two guys are driving and two guys are with the wounded soldier and that's their story. They've just come out of an exhausting few days, they've been shot at, they've been hurt, they got a hostage and they've got some hostiles behind them. Well it turns out the hostiles behind them are in three trucks, okay, and these three trucks are full of guys with guns. So you start doing the math, right? Six Navy SEALs, they're sharp, they're awesome, but that's a lot of hostiles, and that's a lot of bullets, and the odds are not in the favor of these guys. So they're traveling down, and there's an extraction team that had been sent in to extract them, but the extraction team is trying to rendezvous with them, and you keep hearing on the radio, okay, first extraction point shot, first extraction point shot, because they're trying to dodge these three vehicles that are shooting at them a thousand miles an hour. Then they're shooting out of the back, and windows are getting blown out, and in the meantime, they're trying to revive their buddy who's half dead on the couch and I mean on the back seat and they they start going and finally they go okay we're gonna have to take a chance and the guy in the driver's seat shouts back to the other guys water 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 and they take their truck and they drive it into a river I mean hello and they fly into this river and they clamber out of the truck. They're just ahead enough of the hostiles that, um, that it looks like they got enough space to get out of the truck into the water. But now here's what you got, right? You got six Navy SEALs with their weapons underwater. They're neck deep in a river. They got a, a rescued person over their shoulder and a half dead body. And they're in the water and the, the first vehicle pulls up next to the bank. And I look at that scene and I go, that's my life. That's my life right there. I'm neck deep in the water, my gun is wet, I've got a rescued person on my shoulder and a half dead buddy called Brooke, my wife, and I'm trying to make it through the water and I look back and there's a whole bunch of hostiles and they're ready to shoot and kill and I can't even pull the trigger. I'm like, ah, I'm gonna die. And that's missional living, just in case you're wondering, okay? Now, at that moment, right when you think all hope is lost and you're dead in the water, my favorite part of this scene happens. These two boats come around the corner at the last second. You can see one of them there. And as these boats come around the corner, these were the guys, also part of the Navy SEALs, dropped in by helicopters a little distance away, and their timing was impeccable. And as they come around the corner, here's what those two guys, those two boats have. They have six MK-44s on, uh, on, on the boats, three on each boat. Do you know what an MK-44 is? An MK-44 is a Gatling gun. That's one of those guns that revolves. It puts out, you ready for this? It puts out four to 6,000 rounds a minute. That is 100 bullets a second. 100 bullets a second. There is no pow, 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 or pop, 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 pop. This is this. And they have six of them, six. So these two boats pull around the corner and the second they come around the corner, all six MK-44s begin to unload on those hostiles. And the guys are literally jumping out of the vehicle this way to shoot and those guns start firing and they go like this, and they jump that way. Because unlike the movies, you know where you see a guy behind and it's like, pow, 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 pow. No, 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 this is this way. <laughs> Listen, the entire scene, three straight minutes, and not one of those guns stops for one split second. Not for a second. Those enemies are being barraged by approximately 500 bullets a second. You don't, you don't lift your head. You don't 
aim real quick. You just stay flat and hope you live. And that's what those boats do. And you know what's happening while those boats are barraging the enemy with thousands of bullets a second? The Navy SEALs in the water, they're quietly getting onto the boats. Totally relaxed. You watch the scene, they're like, yeah, come on, bud. The other soldiers that aren't on the guns, they're like, you okay, man? Yeah, God, that's awesome. Why? Why are they so chilled? They're hostiles there with guns. No, they're not. They're behind a truck hiding for their lives. Why? Because six very big guns are pummeling them nonstop. And then as the Navy SEALs are on the boat, kind of pull out, the last gun on the back of the last boat's like, fades out, and the hostiles don't move. And I realized, as much as I'm the one in the water with the gun that's wet and a rescued person over my shoulder and a half-dead buddy by my side, around me I have missional communities. Guys that are Navy SEALs as well, like me. They've been, they've been in the heat. They'll be in the heat again, but today their job is to be on the boat. Today their job is with a big gun. And if I didn't have a missional community, if I didn't have a church with me, I wouldn't make it. I'd be dead in the water. Dead in the water. So you start seeing, because we've learned, haven't we? As a community, we've learned that getting involved in orphan care is complicated, difficult. Beautiful, but complicated and difficult. Brooke and I would not have made it the last 18 months if it wasn't for our missional communities, if it wasn't for our circle of friends, if it wasn't for those who are with us, next to us, the six in the water with us, and those on the boat just going, we got you back, man. We're praying for you. We're with you. We're dropping meals off for you. We're taking care of you. We're, we're ready for you, whatever. And next time around, you'll be on the boat and we'll be in the, in the jungle. It's what we do. Navy SEALs just exchange. It depends on your job for that day. But you can do it all. And so we step in to orphan care. So we step in to the world of brokenness together as a community. And we step in as a community day to day on mission. That's why missional communities matter so much here. That's why the gospel compels us to give of ourselves for the sake of others because we have the privilege of being Christ to the world, ambassadors. We worship him that way. We don't do it for ourselves. We don't do it for reward. We do it because he asked. We do it because we can. We do it because we swallow death up. We swallow darkness up. We swallow bondage up when we go out and become the hands and feet of Christ to the world. That's why we do it. And when we're sick and tired and half dead and shot up, we dive into the water and we wait for our missional communities to come around the corner and pull out the big guns so we live. Once the guys got on the boats and they were heading out, you saw this in the scene that the, the six guys that were in the jungle, they look across the boats to each other and they just kind of go like this. Just like, hey, you okay? You good? You good? Okay, great. And then the guy pulls out the cell phone and he's got the, the CIA hostage and she's opened her eyes and he goes, it wasn't for nothing, ma'am. It wasn't for nothing because they've got the cell phone that breaks the entire case. And that's our life, man. We go into the hard places. We get shot at, pummeled, hit by the enemy. Hostels are everywhere. We have missional communities coming to our aid right at the last minute. And when we're done, we get to go like this. It wasn't for nothing, man. It wasn't for nothing. And we get to say, look, it's gonna make change. And maybe we never see that change on our watch, right? but we know somewhere down the pike the redemptive story continues because we were part of it. That's 
why it matters that we get involved in orphans. That's why God said in Hebrews chapter 10, make sure you figure out how to stir one another up and spur one another on toward good works and toward love. Do not neglect meeting together because if you're living radical lives, you're gonna need each other. If you're not living radical lives, well then don't meet together, no point. You're wasting your time anyways, you're just pretending. But if you're gonna step out and live radically for the gospel, well then make sure you're in, mission, in missional community too because if you're not, you're gonna die. And that's our privilege. That's our invitation, that's our story. And I can't wait to see when this entire church steps into mission radically in the lives of orphans in some way and we take orphan care from 300 to 1,500 to 3,000 to 5,000 to 20,000. And someday we have thousands of children from hundreds of countries who have forever homes right here because we chose to worship God radically. Amen? Let's pray. God, make it so. Spirit of God, make it so. We know this is easy to talk about, hard to do. But you've made it so simple for us. Keep our eyes fixed on you and go care for orphans and widows. Start there. Help us to see that simplicity and to engage in that so that what we have accomplished in the last three years would be just unbelievably more than all we can ask for or imagine over the next three years. I pray God in three years from now when we stand right back here and we discuss this reality that it would be mind-blowing what you have done in and through us in the journey we've gone on. God, I'm asking you, engage every Christ follower in this place in orphan care in some way. Every Christ follower. Engage them in orphan care in some way. Because God, we know that's just part of the basics. Part of the basics. It's what you do. You care for orphans. You care for widows. You care for the the destitute. Help us to do that well. So we can honor you. So we can worship you. So that you, you will be made famous. And your kingdom will expand. And your glory will be known as we carry our crosses and bear our redemptive process, being crucified for your sake and for the sake of others, only to watch you resurrect us from the dead. God, we love you. Make it so we pray in Jesus' name.